What I am sharing with you today and throughout this new series is my story as I recall it and some key in hindsight observations about these recollections. We all have a story. You heard Jason's story a few weeks ago and he did a great job. (laughs) And in telling mine, I hope that each of you will intersect with me through common and not so common experiences that make us human. If you truly want to take a path of change in your life, it may be necessary to look back before you look ahead. What you discover could be surprising if you possess the courage to go back to the moments and people and places and experiences that have created the complex web of what made you who you are right now, today. But don't go back with a judgmental eye upon my story or upon your own. Let it be what it is. Relive the joy. Remember the pain. Be honest about the failures. Be humble about the successes. Most importantly, look for God in all of these. As my story, your story, and the scriptural story intersect, I hope you will discover or rediscover God. Seeing Him in new ways, forgotten ways. See Him in the tried and true and in the darkness of mystery. This is my prayer. So today I begin with the yearning within. My earliest memories about God are quite varied. Most of them took place in my little country Sunday school or in the church sanctuary during worship. Through most of my childhood, it was not easy for me to sit quietly through a Sunday morning service. Imagine that. (laughs) My family went every Sunday, and I mean every Sunday. I recall watching my parents sing the hymns while I stood restlessly nearby. As the pastor preached, I'd pass the time by studying the colorful stained glass windows that were lit up so brightly by the late morning sun, or gaze at the details of the painting of Jesus praying in Gethsemane that was imprinted on the wall behind the pulpit. I flip through the familiar songs contained in the red hymnal or dig through the Bible to find out which book has the most chapters. Many of these glimpses were not so much about God as they were about the church that endeavored to teach me about Him. But as a boy, sometimes it was hard to separate one from the other. For me, church was a balanced mix of boredom and wonder. The high priority my parents made out of church was very clear and rarely challenged in my home. I didn't always understand what these people were singing about, praying about, or preaching about, but I knew that it must be important. I knew that God is important, and I kept my young mind open to try to figure out why. This quest created a yearning within me that has endured and sustained my heart, mind, and soul throughout all of my 62 years. His presence in and around me has been as life-giving to me as the air that I breathe. This was evident in the first prayer I remember uttering. 
On a warm summer day, I was playing alone outside in the yard of our farmhouse home. I was four years old. Though I had six siblings, I often enjoyed playing by myself. I had a great imagination and loved to pretend that I was a soldier or a baseball player or a pioneering explorer. The yard included three sprawling maple trees that dominated the sloping hill between the house and the barn and an open grass area where we'd play our favorite childhood games. I enjoyed lying on my back on that grass and gazing into the sky as the clouds scrolled by. I closed my eyes just to feel the warm sun in my face or listen to the persistent hum of insects and frogs coming from the swamp across the street. Then I'd flip onto my belly and bury my face in the grass, smelling the earth as my eyes searched for the tiniest of creatures that moved among the grass roots in, in the moist ground at my fingertips. There was no lack of beauty and wonder for your curious little boy to discover. On one of those days of wonderment, for no reason that I recall, I suddenly paused, got on my knees, with head bowed and hands, hands placed firmly together, I said a prayer that I most certainly learned at church. I asked Jesus into my heart. Then I seamlessly got up and continued playing and exploring. Those few words expressed directly to God felt natural, normal. It was me responding to God. It was a calling. It was a yearning within. Now the prayer wasn't what some would call a sinner's prayer because that memory contains not even a hint of remorse, guilt, shame, repentance, or any sort of inquiry for God to forgive me. It was simply me following up what I heard at church and attaching that language to what I already knew inside to be true. Yes, God really is there. For me, that truth was never in doubt and has never been. More than that, his companionship has never been frightening, overbearing, or intimidating. It was pure, childlike faith. I simply believed, I simply loved. As that boy grew through the common experience of family life, school life, and neighborhood life, he began questioning the validity of that four-year-old prayer, primarily because of a particular approach to evangelism that was frequently employed within the extended faith community that I was born into. Hundreds of times I heard this message, you are a sinner and God is not happy with you. You'd better repent right now and ask him to forgive you before it's too late. This is why Jesus died that horrible death on a cross, or so I was told. It was somehow my fault. My sin put him there, and I better get things right, or I could end up burning forever in hell. This passionate plea came from a vast variety of pastors, Sunday school teachers, evangelists, the comic book style tracts displayed in the church foyer, the camp meeting speaker, or the summer camp director who would each reaffirm the same troubling 
question. If you were to die tonight, where will you spend eternity? It wasn't the main theme in every sermon and every Sunday school lesson. But it always felt like it was lurking in the background. Although scriptures were put to use to set up these passionate pleas to be saved, it appeared to me that they were more firmly founded upon two pillars, shame and fear. It was imperative that I feel shameful about my sin. Well, that didn't take much effort. There was no lack of boyhood guilt-producing violations that I could choose from. Once the guilt set in, the fear grew. My heart would pound. I would dutifully raise my hand or walk to the altar or recite the sinner's prayer and receive Jesus into my heart. Again. There. Oh, that's better. Boy, I'm glad that's over with. But wait a minute. Didn't I already do that in the yard in my house when I was little? Didn't that prayer count? The simple little prayer of that simple little boy playing in the front yard many years ago no longer seemed to matter. What did he know after all? He was just an innocent little kid. Paul, you've got to get things right. Right with God right now and keep it that way. The boy that prayed in the grass already knew God before he even prayed. And his knowing was founded on acceptance Wonder, a yearning to somehow connect with the one who made the incredible world around him. The one who provided him with a wonderful home and family. Love was his starting point. But as the years started to accumulate, fear accumulated with it. And so did fear's constant companion, doubt. Fiery evangelists used both fear and doubt to manipulate the listener into an urgent response. Was he talking about the same God that the little boy prayed to so sincerely? Every time salvation offers were given, even when presented in a less harsh manner, I either felt obligated to respond or I would leave the church wondering if I should have. Whether I responded or not, very little truly changed in me as a result of those evangelistic campaigns. Ironically, assurance of salvation was often used as a key theme by the preachers, and yet my doubts continued. The more they preached about being assured of my salvation, the less secure I felt. To be fair, the love of God was also spoken about but not usually with the same levels of passion that accompanied the warnings of damnation. Does God want me to tremble at his feet or to fall into his arms? Thankfully, I didn't receive these messages of condemnation and threats of hell directly from my parents. They did dutifully take me to the church camp meeting, the summer camp, where this message was frequently given, but they did so fully believing that this is all part of the gospel, that this is what loving and responsible Christian parents do for their children. I am deeply grateful to my parents for giving me a framework of morality and Christian teaching that was both passionate and consistent. I was given the priceless blessing of a boyhood structure that was ordered 
safe, and supported. I was also given a deep respect for the Bible, a book that has not stopped fascinating me since the first day I could read it for myself. Home life wasn't always easy or without some occasional dysfunction, but my gratitude for those wonder years far surpasses the small doses of pain that I endured. In hindsight, the love in my family and in my Christian community was much stronger than the well-intended but misguided fear tactics occasionally employed to drive people to the altar. Now let me say clearly at this point, I'm not condemning evangelicalism. I am an evangelical. And as I've shared before from this pulpit, an evangelical simply means angel, because the word angel is right in the middle of the word, a messenger from God. And that is what I believe in. I believe I have a message from God to share, to give, to teach, and to encourage people to accept. But how that message is presented is vital. It needs to be presented in an air of love. Altar calls can be useful. And the sinner's prayer. And we do need to have a healthy understanding of what the fear of the Lord is. For that phrase emerges numerous times from our scriptures. Fear is necessary. Fear can make us pause, wake us up, slap us in the face, so we realize when the path we are on is destroying us and perhaps those around us as well. But Christ did not go to the cross to make us afraid. To the contrary, he walked courageously into the face of suffering, of shame, of injustice, of persecution, of of humiliation, and death itself. And compelled by deep love, said, stop to death, to fear, to humiliation and persecution. No more. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. John 3.16 Except for the Lord's Prayer, this is probably the most quoted verse in the Bible. It is a succinct presentation of the Gospel. In this salvation message from John 3.16, I see love. I see Jesus. I see belief. And I see a promise of life. What I don't see in John 3.16 is fear. Yes, I see the word perish. But this context in John 3.16 is not a warning about hell. Just read the next verse. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. The purpose of Christ is not to condemn, but to save. And the message and the means of this great salvation is love. As Paul writes in Romans, there is no longer any condemnation in Christ. As a preacher of the good news, the gospel, it is not my responsibility to make you feel bad, feel remorse, or to condemn you. That's not what Christ has done. 
So for me to do so would be the antithesis of the very message I'm trying to proclaim. Just look again in John chapter 3, the next verse, the 18th verse. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. And whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. The unbelieving heart is self-condemning because it already knows what it is capable of. It has a bad track record. Everyone is fully aware of their own sinfulness. No one has to point it out to them. As followers of Jesus, the last thing we need to do is to remind people of how broken and fallen they are. Everyone who's truly honest with themselves already knows this without being reminded. Yes, countless people live in denial of their pain or blame everyone and everything but themselves for their problems. But people caught in denial and deflection aren't ready to hear the truth about themselves anyway. Doubling down on condemnation only pushes them further away. John wraps up this section of John 3 in the 19th verse with this. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. The teaching that emerges from John 3 centers on the light, that is, capital L, light, as John writes about in the first chapter of John. Christ is the light. And that the only way to live in that light is to allow the power of his love to fully expose what you are and let Christ love you in that exposure. No matter how broken, how fallen, how sin-ridden life may be, we are loved in the light by the light. Many followers of Jesus remain trapped inside a system of fear. Perhaps they are afraid to admit that they are afraid. Fear does that. It can stifle the heart and mind so deeply that you become afraid to ask. Afraid to ponder, afraid to wonder. And if your family system and network of friends are closely bound into this fear system, flawed as it might be, you stick with it because you don't want to become ostracized. The end result can be a shallow faith that masquerades as uncompromised dedication to God. It can also make a church community a place where outsiders are distrusted and insiders are defensive. John 3 is centered on God's love. The entire Gospel of John and the letter entitled 1 John emphasize over and over the centrality of love. John uses the word love in those two books 66 times. He uses the word fear six times. So we have 11 times more reasons to believe in love as we do in fear. As John states so powerfully in 1 John 4:18, there is no fear 
in love. But perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. My story began with a prayer of love to God, the God I knew that was already there. No fear, no shame, just unconditional acceptance. Now how about your story? Your starting point. What was your first prayer? When did you first believe in God at all? Why? Where were you? Who, if anyone was with you? Is this memory a positive one for you or a negative one? There's no right or wrong answer here. Your story is your story. I know of people whose first memory of God was associated with a bad, hurt-filled, dramatic, or even traumatic moment. That he or she would one day embrace God in love is incredibly courageous. For me, it began as an experience of wonder and presence. I can honestly say that I have never felt lost from God. Of course, in my own failure and failings, I knew what it was to feel separated from Him. Not separated like a deep, dark chasm often depicted in those comic book style drawings. It was more like how you feel when you say something or do something that hurts a person that you love. Nothing is right or normal between you and him or you and her until both of you set things right. This is the place of forgiveness. And this is why the scriptures so clearly teach, including Christ himself in the Lord's Prayer, that forgiveness between you and God and forgiveness between you and your neighbor are inseparably related. When I am lost, when I am separated from God, it was my choices that led me there. But like the lost sheep in Jesus' parable, He is the one who initiates the finding and the returning. I have been blessed with an awesome awareness that God is, that He has sought me out again and again and continues to do so. That He is present and He always has been. And that presence is based upon His love and acceptance of me just as I am. I chose the 139th Psalm as today's reading because like that psalmist, I am very aware and very thankful that God knows me better than I know me. And yet He still loves me. That is the most wonder-filled news of my life. He loves me, and that love never leaves. The key verse in Psalm 139 is 14. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. The psalmist knows full well that God has created him filled with both wonder and with fear. We all possess the capacity to live within each of those spheres. This is why the scriptures call us to live in the fear of the Lord first. This is the place where wisdom begins. And that wisdom reveals quickly that the God who made us does not demand that we cower in fear 
at his presence. We learn that his presence is a truly wonder-filled place. In closing, listen to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11. In the middle of this chapter, he's giving a stark, fear-filled warning to specific towns in a region that have rejected him and his message. On the surface, Jesus sounds like the fiery evangelist when you read that passage in detail. But his warnings are directed corporately, not personally. In other words, he is warning the institution of coming destruction. But individuals within that institution, in this case cities and towns, are given an invitation to take a different course, a better course. Then Jesus brings us to where his heart is in verse 25. A heart that always stands ready to welcome childlike faith. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. The Father is pleased that the Son revealed the things of God to little children. Listen, child of God to his beautiful invitation in the 28th verse of Matthew 11. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Christ always stands ready to meet you in your yearning that place of childlike faith where there is nothing to fear because you are already loved. Always. Amen. If someone would